I don't like to be called a star, a legend, an icon, any of that. If I know it's going to happen, I tell them don't. You can't say that about me because I don't feel that. I'm an entertainer who works very hard at his craft and very hard to make sure that that audience is absolutely consumed with the moment. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. Meatloaf may have sold 50 million copies of Bat Out of Hell, but he's always considered himself an actor above all else. The man with a muscular voice made his movie debut playing the motorcycle riding rocker Eddie in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, a role he originally played on the stage. That scene-stealing part was immediately followed by his enormous success as a singer. Between tours, he kept acting, giving committed performances in films including David Fincher's Fight Club. In this unrestrained interview with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga, Meat traces the course of his life from a football field in Texas to superstardom. Did you originally set out to be a singer or an actor? All I wanted to do was play football. Now, you asked me about singing and acting. How that all started was in high school. I got hit in the head with a 12-pound shot put at 62 feet, and the person who threw it was the state champion from the year before. And he was gonna, and he won it again. And at 62 feet, and we're supposed to be warming up, like throwing 30 feet, 32, 25. Well, I'm standing like this, there's a guy talking to me like this, and all I remember him saying is, look. He was going, look out. And, I, and so it hit me, and apparently, it was so loud, they could hear it on the junior high school baseball field, which had to be 300 yards away. Apparently, it sounded like a broken bat at a baseball game. If it knocked me out, it only knocked me out for a few seconds. But let me get to the crux of this story real quick, because I'm, I'm good at elaborating. I, had, I was missed school probably 10 weeks. But when I went back to school, I found out I could sing. And I could never sing before I got hit in the head. Because when I was a kid, I would ride in the front seat with my mother, singing to the radio, and she'd turn it down and she goes, you've got to stop because you can't carry a tune in a bucket. 
So just stop. My mother was a good singer, and that's the only thing that really agitated her that I did was sing. <laughs> but then I got hit in there with shot put, and I wanted to get out of study hall because when you play football, you only have one study hall in the first half. When you stop playing football, you have two. So I'm in study hall, and I can't talk, and I hate that. So the first place they put me in was drama class. So I said, great. And then she goes, well, you could go into the choir. I said, okay. And that's when I found out I could sing being in the choir. And I went in sing, trying to fake it as a bass, but I found out I was a tenor. And then if you were in the choir, you had to be in the musicals. And so I was in the music man as a salesman. And then I was in Where's Charlie as the butler. <laughs> and he came in and he had one line. Dinner is served, madam. And that was it. So I could play baseball and do these Millbreed deal. My senior year, we were drinking Miller Lite, and I don't drink. And so the guys I was with bet me that I wouldn't go audition for the musical. Like, I, yeah, I will. I went in there and auditioned. Next day over the loud speaker, it said, and the leads for this year's musical, Plain and Fancy, are in the role of blah, 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 in the role of blah, blah, playing the role of Ezra Weber is Marvin Leaday. And I heard that, you know, I was like goofing off. And I heard that and I went, oh, hang on. I went to the principal. I said, um, listen, it was a joke that I auditioned, so I can't do this role. And he said, you did audition then? I said, yes. And he goes, okay, so you're doing the role. And then the baseball coach threw me off the baseball team for that my senior year. So I did the musical and I got voted one of the 10 best actors in Dallas high school that year. And the reason was this. <laughs> Ezra does a scene with the lead. It's just me and her. And I said to her, you wouldn't do this, but I'm in high school. I don't know the difference. I said to her, if you can get your lines in, go ahead. But it's okay if you don't. Just, I'm going to run this and try to get your lines in, but don't worry about it. And I went out there and, you know, probably like four minutes long, five minutes long. Oh, my God. I, that's when I figured out I could good at improv. I had those people laughing. I got a standing ovation for it. But I got yelled at. Oh, did I get yelled at by the teacher. What do you think you're doing? I said, I was really funny. They loved it. That has nothing to do with it. This poor young lady didn't know what to do. So I got put in detention for that. <laughs> Boy, I was funny. I was showing my mother. My mother goes, where are you going to do this? I said, oh, and this. She goes, I don't think you can do that. And I said, oh, yeah, I won't be. She goes, no, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I said, mom, it's okay. She was trying to talk me out of it, but she didn't. I took more improv classes in school. And then I went out of school because my mother died. And there's a long story that side. There's another long story, but I won't get into that one. But that little piece showed me that I could move in all kinds of directions, even to the point of going to John Belushi's birthday parties before Saturday Night Live. And I don't know if I was the first person to ever do it with him, but I'd been to two parties and never have never seen this. And what you would do at John's birthday parties was John would entertain you. So he would take people into the kitchen and he would say, okay, we're going to do this. And you go, okay. So I went in 
for the samurai tailor, which he did on Saturday Night Live all the time. And as far as I know, I was the first person ever to do it with him, other than when it was on Saturday Night Live. And he said to me, so I'm just going to talk to you, hike out like you can go, and you just agree with everything when I stop. I go, okay, we can do improv. He goes, yeah. So just, I said, I know, I got this, John, not a problem. And we went out and, you know, I just stood there and went, yes. And can we take a little more off the sleeve? In fact, I went with John to Saturday Night Live. Jim Steinman, myself, and John all went to the audition for Saturday Night Live together. Were you a fan of some of the classic horror and science fiction films that inspired Rocky Horror? No. Now I've got another story for you since you brought up that question. And this, I was going to tell you this one anyway. I get an offer to do a Masters of Horror. And it was the lead. And it's called Pelts. And Dario Argento was the director. And so they called me and said, they really want you to do this part, but the producer wants to talk to you. I said, oh, cool. I don't care. So I'm on the phone with him and he's talking and he goes, so you're a fan of horror? And I go, no, I told him I wasn't a fan at all of horror movies, but Dario was on the phone. The, the producer just wanted to talk to me. I didn't know Dario was on the phone. And so I hang up the phone and I get a call back from the agent going, I don't think they're going to use you. I said, why not? They go, we're not sure. We'll find out. They call me back, go, well, Dario Argento was on the phone when you were telling them you don't like horror movies. I said, yeah. And they go, he's the director. I said, yeah. And they go, well, you don't like horror movies. I said, so? What has that got to do with playing a character in one? Because that character has knows nothing about... It has nothing to do... One has nothing to do with the other. Because I personally don't like them. I'm not bringing that element into the character at all. My characters are hardcore. They're, they're so put together. I'm told I have more backstories than any other actor they've ever known. And I have an acting coach that is like one of the queens. And she goes off and does these little sessions. She, don't, she won't tell me who she goes with. She goes on to major movie sets and coaches like leads. But she has to hide. And uh, she won't ever tell me who it is. I study with her, and she goes, you get lost in those characters. I said, no, I don't get lost in them. I am them. I am the character. From my tooth and nail, I'm the character. People go, what would you rather do, sing or act? I go, well, they're both the same. Because when I sing, I sing in character. The characters use my voice to sing. The last record before all these back surgeries, I said, well, let me find how the character actually sings this time. And it may have been an artistic mistake. I don't know. I like the record. Jim Steinman loved the record. That was his favorite record other than the Bat Out of Hell. Don't ask me. But people didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And I was too far off base. So I needed to go back and record and solve that problem. But I, I am the character. When I come on a movie set, I am that person, 100%.
Now, in the stage production of Rocky Horror, you played both Eddie and Dr. Scott. How did you handle that? Well, they're different people. Tim Curry taught me how to act. Even though I'd gone to school and studied and did all this stuff, he taught me. And why? Because you always have heard this language of be in the moment, be in the moment, be in the moment. So up until I worked with Tim Curry, everything I'd done, I thought I was in the moment. So all during rehearsal, I think Tim's line was, Dr. Scott, we meet at last. And he would say it the same way in rehearsal. And the first two performances, he said it the same way. So I replied to him in the same way I'd been replying. He said it, ha, <laughs> Dr. Scott, we meet <laughs> at last. And he was laughing and prancing around. And I break out a character and I go, if I say my line the same way I've been saying it, I'm going to look like a moron. I'm going to look like a complete idiot. It felt like it was 10 hours, that moment. My character had to change his attitude towards Frankenfurter. And it was in a hundredth of a second, but it felt like a year and a half. And so Tim Curry taught me what it meant to actually be in the moment. I went after the show. I went, do you know what you did tonight? He goes, no. I said, you taught me how to act. I said, all these people had told me I'm a good actor, but you taught me what it was meant to be an actor. And I, he knows that. He knows this story. I've told it to him about 15 times, probably. I watch all these people on Broadway, and I'm not going to say what shows, but I've left shows at intermission because their performances weren't real and the characters weren't real. And I, I couldn't sit through it any longer. So I become, I mean, I literally become those characters, hardcore. And it's hard to get me out of them. And on stage, when we perform live, you know, actors have triggers to take you from one place to another, take you from one character to another. And I'm not method. So if I break for lunch, I'm Meisner. So if I, like I said, if I break for lunch, I lose the character. I'm meatloaf. I'm prancing around. I'm telling jokes. Come back. I got to find the character again. Well, I don't sit and contemplate it for a week and a half. You have a trigger. Like to go to the character for Bad Out of Hell and lick my fingers and hit my chest. That's my trigger for that. I got him, you know, I cross, rub this arm for out of the frying pan. Anything for love, it's, I rub my thighs, stand there, you know, standing up and just put both hands on my thighs. I get these people that want to argue with me about things. One guy who is a, what do they call that, a tribute act? He says to me, oh, yeah, right, you know, what is this licking your fingers thing? I said, I don't do it in front of people. Well, I saw it. Okay. I said, it's called a trigger. Oh, what's a trigger? I said, never mind. This guy would blow your mind if he was here. He has since apologized because he just, he did everything in the world he could. I've got another one over in the UK that steals everything I do. I've seen my fair share of Elvis impersonators. Uh, speaking of, is it true that Elvis came to see you? No, no. He was, Elvis had passed away. Uh, Jim Steinman and I were driving down Third uh, Avenue. And we were heading for a movie on the Upper East Side when the radio came on and said that Elvis had died. No. When we played the uh, Pyramid in Memphis, 
three or four members of his band came. And they were absolutely just going on and on and on about, you're, you're the next Al. I said, no, 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 don't even go there. I don't like to be called a star, a legend, an icon, any of that. If I know it's going to happen, I tell them, don't. You can't say that about me. Because I don't feel that. I'm an entertainer who works very hard at his craft and very hard to make sure that that audience is absolutely consumed with the moment. That audience is everything to me. The person who listens to the record is everything to me. I'm doing a character in a film. I'm giving 110% to this character to perform for these people. I don't know what the character thinks. I just, I just realized I had no idea what the character thinks. I was going off on a character, finding this character, and I'm trying to find out, and I go, well, he doesn't know anything about audiences. And people have said that they've never seen anybody so hardcore as me. Well, in Rocky Horror, your number, Hot Patootie, just takes over the whole movie. Yeah, that's the first movie I've ever done. And I had done three shows in New York with an actor named Graham Jarvis. And Graham was the narrator in uh, Rocky Horror in L.A. And I'd never done film. And I knew about energy and pushing energy in this, but I never had a film class or anything about it. Uh, stage. That's all the stage. And I said to Graham, can you tell me, anything about doing a film and he goes yeah like what do you want to know i said how to do it <laughs> he goes well you know about care i said that's not the point he goes i know what you want to know so he said okay take all the energy that you use out there as eddie and dr scott and it's coming from your fingertips from your toes from your, everything and you center that energy right in the middle of your chest as a light, as a beam of light that's going straight to that camera. That's the focus you want to get your character wants to be. And then never let your eyes go dead. You can think about the lyrics, but don't think about them in the fact of what lyrics coming next. It's what the character, he knows what he's doing. So you just have to follow him, but it's got to read in your eyes and the light in the center. I said, okay. <laughs> so I went back to my apartment and kept working on going to the center and going to the center. And I'm trying to figure it out. I'm going, how do I get? So then I asked uh, this other acting coach. I went and audited her class. And she had seen Rocky Horror, so it was okay. So I said, Graham said, oh, you center in your light. So she worked a little bit more on that. She taught me the trigger of how to switch to it. And so... When I got on the set, I was fine. You know, I was a little overwhelmed with it, but that's okay. But I also knew that I didn't have to build the character. I didn't have to go from the beginning of the film to the middle of the film or from the middle of the film to the end of the film and take that character on a very slow ride and let him peek somewhere and let him fall down again. Coming out as Eddie, I could come out at the highest level of that character and stay there because that character was going 
nowhere else but there. So every bit of energy that I could focus went straight to Eddie. And, you know, I knew that about acting, so I just formulated it all and took Graham's advice, this teacher's advice, the advice that I had to do it, and I put it all together and made Eddie. Uh, what did you like most about playing that part on film? People thought I could play the saxophone because if you're going to lip-sync a guitar, you have to play the guitar. And so they had a saxophone player in the band at the uh, the play. So I went to him, and I he goes, okay, I'll tell you, I'll show you the fingering. And he said, you need something to make the thing. So I bought a broom and sawed it off and created a saxophone. And we painted dots where the keys were. And so I practiced with the album from England and I practiced the finger. So people, I came out of that, people thought I could play the saxophone. That was the greatest compliment ever. I was better than, oh, I love Eddie. Do you play the saxophone? That right there was better than anything else about Eddie. The fact that they thought I could play the saxophone. It looks very convincing. It's true. Was that you under the glass table? Oh, hell no. And I said to them, if you talk about eating me one more time. I assume you wished you could have played Dr. Scott in the movie since you already played him on stage? I wanted to play Dr. Scott. Well, I had been cast in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack. And there was a writer's strike. It was the longest writer's strike ever. And I auditioned for Michael Douglas. And I finished the audition and Michael Douglas looked at me and he said, you are Billy Bibbit. And I went, okay. <laughs> I didn't know. I'm so young. And uh, he said, you want to play this character in the film? I said, absolutely. He goes, Marion, we'll call your agent. It's Marion Doherty and work out, work out a deal. So they did. And I was going to Portland to shoot this movie. And, but the writer's strike and I never went. I kept going, what's going on with the uh, Cuckoo's Nest movie? And I went to see the play five times after that. So I was ready to do this Cuckoo's Nest movie, hard ready. And I just never could. And so I got Eddie and I was so over the top. And then, you know, what, three or four weeks passed after I was cast. And I got to England and I went to Jim Sharman and I said, I said, I'm still not playing Dr. Scott. That's for, he went, no. I said, okay. And so then I watched them shoot a scene. The actor playing Dr. Scott is a great actor. He was the narrator in the London production. And they said, well, we need to hire a name for the narrator. Who in the hell's the narrator? I don't know who he is. They go, oh, he's a character actor. From Nobody cared. The guy who played Dr. Scott should have been the narrator, and I should have been Dr. Scott. I watched them rehearsed, and like I said, the guy playing Dr. Scott's great, but there was a level of wanting, the need of being able to find Eddie just this, I got to find him. Dr. Scott was that. He was like, I got to find Eddie. But outside, he wasn't doing that. But that energy was coming from him. And I watched him do it. He didn't have that 
need to find Eddie. It wasn't imperative that he finds Eddie. It wasn't his whole life he needed to find Eddie. That's how bad that guy needed to find Eddie. And you miss that because he didn't play Eddie. And I said to Jim Sharman, when I, when I got there, first of all, I said, you're making a mistake not having me play Eddie. And he goes, no, I think we're fine. I said, okay, that's fine. And so I was there forever because I was doing backgrounds and working with the record and blah, blah, blah. And I was getting ready to go home and I won 40,000 pounds at the Playboy Club playing blackjack. And if you want to go to a casino with somebody, you want to go with me. I have never lost in a casino. And I've won a lot of money, that being the first. I walked in with 40 or 60 pounds and the guy I went with was a Pakistani cab driver living in England who I made friends with. And he said, anytime you want a cab, just call me. I said, I'm not gonna take you. No, that's, your, that's what you do. And he goes, well, if I'm off, I'll come and get you. I said, oh, okay. So he calls me up one night and goes, you wanna go to the Playboy Club? He called me up at like 10.30 at night. I said, no, nah. he goes, it, it, it's a casino. That's where we're going. I said, because I didn't want to go watch Playboy Bunnies. And so I said, a casino, okay. So he picks me up, 11.45, we get there at midnight probably. And we're walking through and there's a, a store as you walk in. There's a Rolex watch there. Now I didn't know Rolex watches from Timex. And he said to me, I love that watch. That watch is incredible. I saw the price and it was 7,000 pounds. I went, yeah, you're right. That watch is incredible. And so I kept moving. I won 40,000 pounds. When we left, I bought him the watch. So he got a Rolex watch and I walked away with 33,000 pounds. I was up over 50 and I started to lose. It was like a movie, like, like James Bond. I was playing all seven slots, all these people around me. Nobody knew who I was, nobody knew Meatloaf from Salami. But I was a momentary star in a casino with people watching me going, oh, I know he should. And I was playing all one and guys behind me going, don't hit. I go, I know, you know, and then I started to lose. And so I said, OK, I'm gone. And they went, no, no, you, you know, the dealer's going, no, you don't want to go now. You get I'm going, no, I'm going. Thanks. It was absolutely amazing. This stupid kid, not stupid, but not a redneck. But growing up in Texas, being in a, a real religious family, I was very sheltered. I didn't know the world. You know, I was like, went to church on Sunday, Sunday night. Like I said, I didn't know the world. I was learning the world being on doing acting in New York. I was in New York and I kept hearing about the hookers on 8th Avenue. And I was staying in a hotel. The show was on 49th, I guess, here. And I was in a hotel on 46th. I would walk down 8th and turn right. So they kept telling me about hookers on 8th Avenue. And I kept going down 8th Avenue going, where are they? So finally, I get to the show early and I say to one of the leads, I go, they keep talking about hookers on 8th Avenue. I said, where are they? And they looked at me and said, what? I said, where are the hookers? He says, come on. He takes me out and he says, you see those three women there? I said, yeah. He goes, those are hookers. I said, how do you know? He goes, okay, let's go back inside. So I eventually figured it out. So you know what I did? I went over one night to one of them and she said something about $10 for something, I don't know. 
And so I said, can I talk to you? She goes, yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to give you $40. She goes, okay. And so she, where, where do you want to go? I said, nowhere. And so I just started asking her, why are you in Hooker? What? what, what? And she, eventually she just goes, you know what? You're a stupid hillbilly, and I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You want your $40 back? I go, no, I got what I needed. So I figured out where hookers were and figured out they were in trouble mentally, and they'd had something happen to them, and they just needed to be talked to, but you couldn't talk to them. And so I spent my time in New York learning about life. What really was horrible was I, I'd heard I could sing. I did Aquarius on Broadway when I went to do hair. You know, it got applause. It a big deal. And I'd done some other shows, got applause, you know, nice applause. So I met this guy named Jim Steinman. I went down and I sang a song off the Motown record called I'd Love to Be As Heavy As Jesus. It was just for Jim. I didn't know Jim. So I sang for Jim and... He walks past me, and he taps me on the arm like this. He goes, by the way, you're as heavy as two Jesuses, and leaves. I go, okay. And we sit there. A guy named Steve Margoshes, who was part, part of the family after that, great piano player. Him and Paul Schaefer's, who I used as audition piano players in New York. So we sit there for 30 minutes. Because Jim Steinman said, I didn't know Jim Steinman, but the guy left and said, I'll be right back. 30 minutes. And I said, Steve, I don't know about you, but I got other things to do than sit here in this big giant room. He goes, yeah, I agree with you. I said, okay. I looked down. It's three minutes left to be 35 minutes. I said, we'll give him three more minutes. And he goes, okay. As soon as that came out of my mouth, the door opened and in marches Jim and all these people. And I am assuming that one of them was Joe Papp. The guy takes over and goes, so Jim tells me you can sing. Do you mind singing something for us? I said, no. I said, Steve, let's do the chorus. I got four lines into the chorus, and they said, hey, hang on, stop, stop. They go, we want you to go across the hall and learn a song that this gentleman wrote and come back and sing part of it for us. I said, okay. So this is 1971. I've been out of high school for six years, so figure that one out. And I grew up in Dallas in a religious family, and I'm now singing for a public theater downtown New York. Woohoo! And so I go and I learn a chorus to a song called More Than You Deserve. And that's the first song I learned of Jim. And so I go off. And I come back, and I literally get, it's, won't you take some more, boy? It's, stop. It was louder than that. I'm not warmed up, and I'm a few years older. They go, stop. I go, okay. And so he says, here, here's a script. Here's a list of four characters. Read the script, and then let us know which character you want to play. I said, okay. So I went home. Read the script. Remember the name Armand Coulet from before? I had never read a script. I've never been offered a part and read a script called. So I'm going, 
I don't know if I like it. How do I know? So I call Armand. And Armand goes, well, did it offend you? I went, no. He says, is it a comedy? I said, yeah, sort of. He goes, well, did it make you laugh? I said, yeah. He said, so nothing offended you and it made you laugh. Did you feel anything in particular about one certain character? I said, yeah, there was one character by the name of Rabbit. And they're all, this is Vietnam. We're all in Vietnam, all the characters. And I said, he's a junkie and he's a little crazy. And so what he's doing, he's throwing grenades at his own people to blow them up so they can go back home. He thinks all he's doing, and you're not killing them. He's, no, I'm not killing them. They're, they're just going home. They went out of Vietnam. That's how crazy this character was. And so our mind says, well, that pretty much tells you who you are. And I said, oh, so I should tell him I want to play this? He goes, yes. So I called him and I said, I want to do the character Rabbit. They said, okay. So I went down and I'm scheduled to play in this little showcase. And it runs for four weeks, three performances a week in one of his little showcase theaters, which holds 100 people. So the first performance of this, the only song in this, it's written by Michael Weller, who ran a, won a Pulitzer or something like that for a play. And it's only got one song in it right now. And so I sing the song. And in a theater of 100 people, you're very cautious about what you do. You know, you do Okay, yeah, they're plotting. Okay, I will. Or in a supper club. Yeah, that's nice. That's People don't go crazy. These hundred people went nuts. They stood on their feet and were stomping their foot like some rock concert. I'm freaking out, going, what have I done? And I come back off stage and Joe Papp is going, I knew that was going to happen. I go, you knew they were going to start? He goes, yeah. He said, just don't worry about it. And I said, okay. So that happened every time. It moved to Off-Broadway. Paul Shaver was the conductor in the Off-Broadway play. I did that song one night in the first couple of weeks. I'm in hardcore in this character, Rabbit. And the audience took me right out. They go, applause wouldn't take me out of character. You don't really hear it. It's like I don't hear applause when I'm doing my own shows. But I do hear them start to go, more, more, more an encore in an off-Broadway play. Are you joking? I never saw that happen before. It happened about five times when we took it off-Broadway. So people have been saying to Jim, Jim, you need to work with Meatloaf. And they're saying to me, you need to work with Jim. So I'm going, well, okay. So I go around Jim and I'd want to talk about it, but he, he kind of was, Jim's very intelligent and very stubborn. <laughs> but I was one of the few people that could turn that. They kept going, Jim, you need to work with me. me you know. But Jim wanted to work with some guy that was skinny with long blonde hair that was great looking. Here I am, long stringy hair, weighing 295 pounds, and I don't look anything like a rock star. Eventually, Jim figured it out, and we, we took it around New York singing these songs. Not, we didn't sing Paradise. But we did Crying Out Loud, Heaven Can Wait, Battle to Hell, Took the Words, uh, More Than You Deserve, I don't know, nine or ten shows. And we started off at a club called Reno Sweeney's, opening for a young lady named Genya Ravon. 
first night we were there, I, I knew what was happening. Just from being around, I said to her, listen, I'm not trying to have an ego trip. I'm not trying to do anything. But it might be better if you went on first and we went on second. And she looked at me. She was totally insulted. She's going, no, I don't know who you think you are, but just get away from me. I said, okay. So we did the show. Place went nuts. There's a hundred people and they're nuts in a supper club. Supper clubs don't go nuts. And Ginyu went on after us. <laughs> we were supposed to go. It was a Friday, Saturday night. Then on Saturday night, I showed up. She goes, uh, meatloaf, right? I said, just meat. She goes, okay, meat. Is it okay if I go on first tonight because I got... She's making up an excuse. I said, yeah, Ginyu, go on. You go on first. I'm fine. And I went to Jim and everybody said, Ginyu's going to go on first. And everybody just kind of chuckled. And I eventually knew her well enough to go, you went on first because of what happened. She goes, yes. She goes, I couldn't believe you were right. And I, that happened with the Bob Winter and her overdrive when we were, uh, all these bands. I kept going, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to go on after me. Not, it's not my ego. It's, that's not what it is. It has nothing to do with ego. It's, I just know what's going to happen every time I go on. I walk to the edge of a stage as meat. I walk on the stage as meatloaf. I go to stage right and stand there, look at the audience, walk across stage left, look at the audience, come back again, not as far, do that, go back over to this side into the center. And what I'm doing is I'm taking that audience, and I played for 400,000 and did the same thing. I don't know if I got them all, but I'm taking that audience and making them into one person. And I, it, some nights it's a guy, some nights it's a girl. I don't know. And I sing all night to that one person. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of people come up to me. I go, I loved your show last night. It was like you were just singing to me. I'm going, oh, great, it's working. And that's what I do. And I don't remember shows. I have no idea. I know what happens when I walk to the edge. And when I come off, it's like running full speed into a brick wall. And people walk by and go, the band just steps over me. It's like, it's funny. If you, if you haven't been backstage and watch the band, they go, he's down. Why don't these guys care? No, no. And they go, good show, me. Good show. Good, you know. And if I know what has happened, it's not a good show. If I know one minute of that show, anything that the only way I know what happened is if they film it and I get the piece. But every night since 1986, we've taped every show. Now, I, know, I can tell what happened from the tape. So if we're going on at 8 o'clock, I show up at the venue at 2. If we're going on at 9, I show up at 3. So I'm there six hours before to go through that tape, stop it, analyze certain things, and then warm up, do the thing, do whatever. But that's the only way I know what has happened in a show. And people don't understand it and tell me, no, that's not true. I go, it's okay. You don't have to believe it. I don't, it's not important that you believe it because that's what happens. Now you had all Jim's great songs. So what did you think of the song Hot Patootie when you got it? Well, not a lot because I'd only done a few songs with Jim at that point. 
and we'd only been working together, but we both had to keep working. So I did an off-Broadway play, and Jim was, Jim got signed to public theater his senior year at Amherst. And it's a good thing he did, because he, he, gra- he, he eventually graduated, but it was an honorary, but he went to school there. I didn't know enough about it. I'd only done more than you deserve. And I'd learned a couple others. I had learned having come wait. And mostly we were doing other people's material, like Tom Waits. We'd do shows, and I'd do Tom Waits' Martha, or I'd do a song Glenn Campbell did, or whatever, these little supper clubs. And we had had a song by Jim, so not that many. So Hoppatootie was just another silly Broadway, off-Broadway song. It was funny. It didn't make any sense. (laughs) But it's okay. I had to make people believe it. What was it like seeing Tim Curry as Dr. Frankenfurter for the first time? Here we go. You ready for the first time I saw Tim Curry? Okay. We're rehearsing in a little theater. It could have been Hollywood Boulevard. We've been rehearsing songs over at the Frankenstein Place, Hoppatootie, you know, all this stuff. But we hadn't heard anything to deal with Tim Curry at all. And so we heard two or three days before... Tim Curry would be coming in next week after we take the week off. He'll be coming in on Monday or whatever day we started. And we said, oh, great, fantastic. I hadn't seen any script. Everything was fine over at the Frankenstein place, whatever. I don't know, that's fine. I hadn't seen anything really funny, but okay. So all of a sudden this music starts and they've added a guitar player and a bass player. Okay. And the music starts and the doors of this theater burst open, in comes Tim Curry in the corset with the garter belt, with the fishnet stockings, with the high heels, with the leather jacket, all in makeup. And I, I go, oh no, uh-uh, nope. And I get up and walk out. I go, no, not doing this. I didn't even watch him finish the song. I just knew, no, I knew what a drag show was. I'd been one in LA, somebody in New York. And I thought it was funny, but that's it, you know? And so, in fact, I went with two gay friends of mine. <laughs> I've never gone out with the uh, high school star, you know? I go out with the guys over here. So I run out of the theater as fast as he comes into the theater. And Graham Jarvis is chasing me. And Brian Abnett's chasing me. And they kind of catch up with me. And I go, just turn around, leave me alone, Brian. Give me whatever you owe me money-wise. Get me on a ticket. I'm going back to New York. And they go, but me, wait. I go, no, me, nothing. I crossed, I ran a red light. In 1973, you don't walk across the street when it says don't cross in L.A. So I went across the light, and I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard, and Graham and Brand and another guy and Brian Abnett catch me. And they're going, meet. You got to understand what this is. Graham's going, and Graham doesn't know either, but he's saying to me, Meet, you're a professional actor. You owe them the respect to come back and 
Don't just walk out on them. Talk to them. Let them replace you. Keep it, make you continue to be a placeholder. I said, Grandma, I'm not doing the show. He said, you don't have to. He goes, but it's not professional what you did. Come back and be a professional. I said, okay. I learned Graham was my coach, really. And uh, so I went back, and Brian comes out. I'm sitting in the theater, and I'm in the back. I'm going, I can't believe I'm here. He comes back with a script. He says, you can leave now. Go to your apartment. Read the script. And if it's offensive, and it was offensive to a kid from Texas, a guy in a garter belt, that's offensive. But I keep reading about Dr. Scott. And Dr. Scott has one on two and fishnet stockings. And I love comedy. I'm going, now that's funny. Me in fishnet stockings and a garter belt with high heel shoes. That's funny. Okay, I'll do it. I'm all, I only did the show because of the garter belt, fishnet stockings, and the high heels. For me to lift my leg in a theater, knowing what would happen every night. Did you pick up anything from watching Tim Curry on stage? Tim Curry would never break character. No matter how hard they laughed or how long they went on, he was Frankenfurter. I would break away from Dr. Scott in a heartbeat with him laughing. But one Saturday night, I did it. And they wouldn't stop laughing. And they, it kept going in waves. And Tim broke character and started laughing. And I turned to him, I said, I caught you. And he laughed again. And then he, he turned around and walked away and flipped back into character. And I got him to stop laughing. I took off my shoes and threw them in the audience. And they, went, they were diverted. So we got stopped laughing. But that, I remember that night so well. Biggest laugh I'd ever heard in my life. And still never heard one bigger than me lifting my leg. 290-pound leg in a theater wearing a fishnet stocking and high heels in a garter belt. What did you think of the film when you first saw it? I mean, did you have any idea it would find the kind of audience that it did? No, I'll tell you the first time I saw it. I was doing National Lampoon show out on the road. I was John Belushi's understudy in New York. And the reason I took the gig is because they paid me $500 a week to do nothing. I had to go to the show twice a week. They told John, you need an understudy. Who are you going to get? Oh, well, there's only one. It's Meatloaf. So John calls me, says they want to hire you as my understudy. I said, for what? He goes, National Lampoon Show. I said, well, tomorrow's softball day in Central Park. So if you want to meet me at 10 o'clock, I'll be in Central Park over, you know where we play. And he goes, yeah. I said, well, come on out. So it was the director of Ghostbusters, Ivan Reitman, uh, the director who had already won a Tony, the producer who was also big time now, and John, they were supposed to meet me at 10. They got there about 11.15. I was already in the middle of the game. So, you know me now. Where is my all my focus is? And only there. 
is in that game. And I'm not going to break that focus for anything. And that's what I say to him. I say, no, no, uh-uh, no. I'm in this, I'm pitching, and I can't break away from that. So we'll talk after. Obviously, I was in character as a pitcher. <laughs> I get in character to do everything. I'm not in character doing this. I'm meat right now. I can get in a character of meatloaf if you want, but no, I don't want to go there. So I was obviously in character as a pitcher because I was a great softball pitcher. I mean, great. I had a record of over 400 wins and under 50 losses. But John came out and they said, I said to him, do I have to be there? And they went, no. I said, do I have to rehearse? They went, no. They said, just watch. And if John will rehearse you, but the only thing we can rehearse you is in the blocking because it's all improv. I said, ah, okay, no problem. So we did it on the road. And Mimi Kennedy, who is a star on sitcoms now in Hollywood, she was in the play along with That's Where I Met Ellen. And Mimi wrote back to them. We're fine now, but she wrote, she wrote back to them. I just saw her online because Jim died and we all talked. That's heartbreaking. Oh, my God. I have to get away from that real quick. So Mimi Kennedy called them up and said, I need to talk to you guys. They go, OK, we'll come up. So they came up and all the cast got together and they said, Mimi, what's the problem? Well, he just continually changes all the dialogue all the time. It's just not the same. And they looked at her and goes, Mimi, this is an improv show. You don't have a script. You've got a script as far as situations, locations, and what's going on around it. But as far as the characters, there's no script. And she goes, well, what's there? Uh, suggestions. And she goes, well, I'm, I'm reading suggestions and he's not doing anything. And they go, Mimi, it's improv. So she finally gets, goes along with it and then likes it. <laughs> when she figures out that she can do anything she wants, as long as it's not a negative input, she's good. You talked a lot about putting yourself into the characters. So who is the character of Eddie? And how did you get into that mindset for the play and the film? Like, did you create a backstory for him? Oh, yeah, for every, yeah, I had to create a story for Graham Jarvis's character and how he affected Eddie and Eddie's parents were and why Eddie's father died. And Eddie's mother was like sort of a drunk, but not a drunk. And she cared about Eddie, but they didn't. Eddie was kind of a loner. He needed a girlfriend, but he was heavy and girls didn't like him. Although when he got one, it was she was good looking. Oh, yeah, it went on and on and on. And he didn't start riding motorcycles until he was 15 and he'd made up enough money working in the grocery store to buy one. And then that's all he wanted to do. He didn't want to work in the grocery store, but he worked in the grocery store only because he needed enough money to buy gas and travel around. And Eddie then moved out of his house and he lived with these three guys. The house was a giant disaster, but Eddie didn't care. He had his own bedroom. And Eddie's grandmother came looking for him and tried to get him out of the house. I could go, Eddie, I go on, go on and on. And Eddie became the delivery boy because he needed money. The scar up on his head that was still healing when we did the play was drawn on with an eyebrow pencil. <laughs> they kind of put, I can't remember, did they put stitches up there or not? I don't remember. But I know why 
he had the stitches is because he got in a fight at this club called Rainbow Room, which is basically off of the next door place where we did the theater. And it was um, a redneck bar on the Trinity River in Dallas. It goes on and on and on for my agent says to me, Michael Green says to me, I can't believe you make such an elaborate backstory for an audition. I go, well, you got to find the character. He goes, but you go on and on and on. He goes, well, you got to do what you got to do. I said, yep, just for an audition for, you know, to go in and read a paragraph. I don't create a huge one, but I know who his mother was. I know who the father was. I know if he lived at home. I know if he lived in an apartment. I know if he had a girlfriend. I know what kind of car he drove. I, you know, just all this stuff. And on stage, every one of those characters has a backstory. I couldn't tell you what they all are now, but they all do. And I had the triggers, like, that's the way to get to bat out of hell, that's to find that guy. When did you realize that Rocky Horror had become a cult hit and had this legion of dedicated fans? The first time I saw the film was in Philadelphia. I was doing National Lampoon show. And Ellen wasn't my girlfriend yet. She was going to become a girl. That's how she got on Paradise. That's why Paradise was written. And Jim, myself, and Ellen went to the theater just down the street at the four o'clock or 4.30 showing, because we had to be back for a half hour at seven, so we were fine. And there were three of us in the theater, and a couple over here, and two guys over there. So there was three, seven people in the theater to see it. Jim was very analytical about it, which is Jim. And I was very, I should have played Dr. Scott. <laughs> you know, that was my whole take. I should have been like, Ellen, was, what was that? So I, I, we explained to her Rocky Horror, and she went, oh, okay, now I get it. Oh, well, that wasn't bad. But the people there, the couple of guys over there that started, I think they got up and left, or was over. And it closed. It didn't open wide, but it closed before it got a chance. And the next thing you know, I heard it was playing at the Waverly. So I went down there one night, and I go, well, I'll go see it again. But I couldn't get in because it was sold out. And then I found out it was sold out every Saturday night, just in one night, Saturday. Timmy came to me and said, me, will you go to the Rocky Horror Show with us tonight? I said, yeah, sure. I got some friends in from England and we're all going to go down and see it. I don't know if I'm sure Tim had seen it, but he wanted to take his friends. And so when we got there, and there was a line to get tickets. And so I told him, I said, just wait over in the shadows. I'll stand in line. Because I was meat, nobody knew meatloaf then. It, it wasn't big enough for Eddie. So I went up and I said, can I get four tickets? She goes, I'm sorry, we're sold out. I said, well, listen, maybe you can find some seats. I have Tim Curry just right here. And he plays Frankenfurter. And I'm meatloaf. And I play Eddie. And she looks at me and goes, okay. I said, Tim, come here. 
And so Tim came around the corner. She went, oh. So I said, yes. So can we get four tickets to go in? All of a sudden, I guess the manager walks in, goes, what's going on? And the girl was so excited. This is Tim Curry, the star of the movie. And that's Meatloaf. And she goes, what? I go, never, never mind. Just can we get four tickets? We got four tickets. And they were sitting, you know, some theaters, they come up and then there's an aisle and then their balcony is not really a balcony. It's just a, a different, higher part of the theater. So we're down there and we're in the front row of this section that crosses in the middle. Well, this owner, I'm sitting on the end so nobody would bug Tim. And I'm sitting on the end and she passes by me and she goes, you had better be who you say you are or you're going to jail. I don't think she said it with a Southern accent, but that's beside the point. But that's what she said. I said, trust me. And she kept walking by for a few minutes. And then Eddie came back and she looked at me because I had long hair. Then the girl at the ticket counter as we were going said, well, you dyed your hair black. And I said, no, that's a wig. I said, you can't tell. She goes, oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I said, terrible wig, too. So anyway, they found out that it was Tim, but I hustled Tim out of there. And um, that was the only time I ever saw it. And they really hadn't started their whole, they'd started a few things. Eddie was coming out and they'd all scream, not me love again tonight. And they had a couple of water pistols and, but it wasn't a big deal. But now they have, I didn't understand until just recently what a shadow cast was. I used to think that it was silly. And why did they do it in front of the screen and kill the movie? Cause the movie's pretty good. And then I found out that the people are very serious about the acting. They're very serious about what they're doing. They're very committed to it. So I can't disapprove of something like that. I may think it's funny to do it in front of a screen while a movie's playing, but that's okay. But they're very committed to those characters. And I've talked to a couple that come up and these Comic-Con things, come up and say, I do Eddie, he does Frankenfurter, or she does Frankenfurter, whatever. I used to be offended by it. I'm not anymore. I think it's fine. I think it's, I think the shadow cast, they really care and they want to act. But when you go into show business, you have to come into show business and you can't be afraid of failure. Because every time you do an audition, you don't get it, you fail. So that's failure. You can't be afraid of not having Campbell's soup. I was homeless in L.A. for almost a year. I didn't have to be. I could have joined this bar band that did top 40 hits. But no, I got to stay true to who I am. And if who I am is homeless because he can't find a gig that gives him enough money to get a house, then so be it. But you were in a touring band when you were in L.A. before you joined the Rocky Horror Show. The band, I, I got this band... And they called it Me Love Soul, and we started working out at Huntington Beach. And we worked there almost every weekend, at least four days a month. And we got paid every night. So I was in heaven. I was doing what I wanted to do. Not necessarily what I really wanted to do, but it was part of what I wanted to do. And that was getting the band. I really wanted to act, but if I could, I could do this and make money, I'm going to do this. I'll eventually come around the corner and act again. It's just opening a door. I'm not cheating because we're doing original songs. So I was happy. And then that band went to Michigan. It was called Me Love Soul and then called the Popcorn Blizzard. Great name. That band played to 
every band you can think of except the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, or Jefferson Airplane. You name another band, we played for them. From the Fugs on down. Procol Harum, Cream. Uh, we opened for the Who several times. I, I guess the Who liked us a lot. The energy we brought to the stage for them, because you can't blow the Who off the stage. They, you know, they, you know, I don't care who I am. I can open for the Who. It's not a problem. One show we opened for them. Then we opened for them at Cobo Arena twice, and that's the first arena gig. Oh my God, I was in a state of shock. I saw Daltrey one night in the Granny Ballroom come out to the side of the stage, and I saw him standing there, and I looked at him, and then I went right back to what I was doing, because I, I was sort of in character with that band. But I didn't know enough at the time to be in character. You know what I mean? Because Tim Curry showed me how to go there. So I would take characters, and but I wouldn't, I'd still partly meatloaf. And now when I sing, I'm not meatloaf at all. I have nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with that man at all. Tell me about Fight Club and working with David Fincher. Oh, I, I, I love David Fincher. I want to work with him so bad again. I don't know. He tends to work with actors again. Maybe he will. I don't know. But David and I got along very well. There's a couple of stories Fight Club. Let me tell you this one first since I'm on David. David Fincher's average take is 40. And so now we're down there and all the extras are there. That's the, where they fight in the underground. So I start going, well, let's get a pool together on how many takes this scene's going to get. They went, okay. I said, I'll put in $5. My guess is 42 Then it went on, went on, went on. So one day I asked them, what's the pool up to today? They went, $620. I went, okay, thanks. Went over to David and I go, David, you know about the betting. He goes, well, sort of, but I don't pay attention to that stuff. You know I can't. I said, I know. I said, but I have put in $20 on 42 takes. The pot right now, when I left, was $620. So if you call 42 and that's it, moving on, I'll split the money with you. It's worth $310. He goes, okay. So we're taking it at the 42nd take. He goes, okay, let's move on. And I knew he wasn't, but that's okay. So he goes away and everybody's milling around and, and I get the winnings and I go over to David and I give him his $310. And all of a sudden, the first AD comes out and goes, okay, everybody, back to this back. We're going back to one on the last thing. And we got some more takes. And everybody's going, no, 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 no. Me gives, I said, I, I, don't, I gave the money away already. And they go, well, that's, no, that doesn't count. I said, this is a different, whole different ball game. It may be the same scene, but we're shooting again. So we're starting back at one, aren't we? I said to the first AD, is the first take going to be one? He goes, yeah. I said, there you go. Well, 42 takes of anything is hard work, and I can only imagine what it was like on Fight Club. Oh, that was a, that was a tough... Uh, I'd have knee surgery after that was over, and they paid for it. But that was, that was an incredible, incredible, incredible time. When you do film, I talk about getting into character. Well, before you read the script and before they go there, you, you've got 
two or three options, maybe more, maybe six options. But before you walk into the film, you got to choose one and you got to stay with them. So I do and I stay with them and I stay with them so much that people they freak out. Once the shoot is over, once he goes, okay, cut, wrap, check the gate, I break character, I'm fine. But when we're in character, you can't talk to me. There's nothing anybody can say. The director can come over to me because I kind of have this channel open to him. And they come over and they go, meet? I go, yeah. And I go, we need to do this. Okay, what? And that registers and I go away. Fight Club, I did that. Now, the other thing on Fight Club is my second day filming with David. I'm from the Meisner Brando school where you have a physical trait. The character, because I have a physical trait, you do, we all do. This character, I picked him to have a bad knee and later on I never even thought of that. So he limped and he was, I'm pigeon-toed, but he was very pigeon-toed. And so when we got up to cross the floor to walk over to Ed Norton's character, Bob was walking across the thing and I got to Ed and David yells, cut. And he comes, meet, what are you doing? I go, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, well, you're walking. I said, that's how the character walks. He goes, you're gonna force me to shoot that. I said, I'm not, I, I'm not trying. He goes, okay, when we do this, we got another shot here. So he took the shot of me walking. And I, that happened in, um, with a movie with Michael Keaton. The director goes, damn you for doing that. And it happens a lot. <laughs> they go, I can't believe you're making us do another take. On Roadie, we finished, I was the lead in Roadie, we finished the whole scene. And moving on, it's on a bus in a little town. And I said to the director, he wanted to take one more take. I said, no, I said, you're changing everything. So he, I went over to him, I said, are you really moving on here? He goes, yeah. He said, it's all great. I said, no, it's not. I said, you put the character in a hole and he can't be in that hole. He said to me, you're right. We're gonna shoot that again. I said, I told you so, but I'm always doing that to directors. Go ahead, you got a question. Did you do anything like that for your scene in the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Because it looks very complicated. Oh, it was very complicated. Two or three things happened. Okay, so that was obviously a stuntman riding that motorcycle around the thing. It's obvious. And they put me on that bike to, to let me learn how to ride it. And somebody, Tim or somebody said, you cannot expect him to ride that. No, no, we don't. We don't. I think in the back of their mind, they thought, well, he might be able to. No. Anyway, the stuntman, the bike went off the the ramp up there and fell off and it fell completely on top of him on his back and you hear the stories about people getting superior strength or all this stuff i went over and picked that bike up and moved it off of him how i i i, I it's adrenaline i could i couldn't move it at all and i thought he was dead because there i'm another lesson right he lays there and he's not moving and everybody's asking me, you okay? Are you okay? Okay, get an ambulance, get somebody. He doesn't say anything. And he goes, yeah, I'm okay. And I said to him, what were you doing? He goes, 
Okay, if you ever have an accident anywhere, and one like that where you need to lay perfectly still and examine every part of your body, go from your toes up, your hands, your fingers, your elbows, your shoulders, your head, everything. And if you've got major pain anywhere, do not move. Whatever you do, don't move. And so he opened his eyes and popped up and I went over and, and he goes, I was fine. So that's why I got up. He goes, oh, yeah, I probably got some bruises, but no big deal. And I learned that now they want to get a shot of me look like I'm on that ramp, right? So they put the windshield on a wheelchair and put me up on the ramp to roll down because you can see me rolling down. You looks like I'm riding the, but they did it wrong. And on the first take of that, I'm rolling down the, the ramp, but the ramp has a lip. You can't have a lip because what happens you get that lip? It's top, it's front heavy. So I flipped. I'm going like this. And the stump man jumped in to catch me, to keep me from in there and broke his leg. The motorcycle landed on him, didn't get hurt at all. Catching a wheelchair that I'm in, broke his leg. Mind boggling. So then they figured out they shouldn't do it that way. And they, we did something else, but we got the shot. But that, and the other thing is, um, the best thing about the Rocky Horror Picture Show is watching a 21-year-old Susan Sarandon on a set in brawn panties. I don't care who you are. I, I don't care what nationality. I don't care if you're whatever you are. That's an amazing sight that you will never forget. And I can see it right now. Is it fair to say that Rocky Horror helped to launch your career? Yeah, and I'll, it did in this respect. When we finished the record, everybody at CBS, with the exception of two or three people, well, we had two or three people in the right spots for it. Everybody hated the record. They hated the record of Bad Out of Hell. I mean, didn't dislike it. They hated it and asked me why I was doing that. You have so much talent. Why are you with this guy? You should be over here with this guy and this guy. Some of the stuff that came back at us was just, the worst one was Clive Davis. Now he has since apologized and I'm friends with Clive Davis. But he said to me, and it was okay for me because he said, you're like Ethel Merman. I loved Ethel Merman. I thought she was so great. And then he said, and you, meaning Jim, pop songs are A, B, C, A, C, C. Verse, bridge, chorus. Verse, chorus, chorus, out. You are F, A, G, B, Z, D, Q, R, L, P. You make no sense at all. And the funny thing is that if that didn't make any sense to Clive, the original versions of Jim songs would have confused the hell out of them because originally we had a band name 
It was going to be this band, you know, the Raccoon Midnight, the Midnight Raccoons. I don't know. I just made that up. That's pretty good. Battle to Hell. That's what it was. And, and inside it was going to say, Songs by Jim Steinman with Meatloaf. I didn't really write them. I directed them and gave him some storylines for them. Not for crying out loud or for Heaven Can Wait. And that's the only two songs, well, Heaven Can Wait, I touched a hair. Crying Out Loud didn't touch at all. And I will argue with anybody in the world. If you want to argue with me, come on. That Crying Out Loud is the best love song ever written in history. You can name it. I'll, I'll debate you till the cows come home. You know, the rest of the record, you know, there's other things that's good, but not Crying Out Loud. But Bad Out of Hell, he comes in and... <laughs> Uh, we're working on a, a song on Lampoon Show, and that song took the words, and he's playing stuff, and I'm going, let's go here, Jim. Okay, now, let's get out of that bridge, go to a chorus, go to a verse, and don't come back to a bridge, let's go to a chorus. You know, doing, kind of moving things around, arranging, not really writing, Bad Out of Hell. He comes to me with the, plays Bad Out of Hell, and it ends at the end of the second chorus. I say, Jim, that's outstanding, but Where's the rest of the story and what happens to the guy? And Jim goes, oh, my God, you're not doing that to me, are you? I said, yeah, I am. I need to know how to get to find this guy. What's the rest of his story? Paradise by the Dashboard Light is about me and a girl I went out with in high school. Uh, I had a 1963 Red Ford Galaxy convertible. And it literally, if you go find one, has the dashboard of doom. And it would, if you take the top down, I mean, it would light up the area. And this girl would always, I don't remember if it exactly stopped right there, but it was basically that line. Hang on, stop, just stop. It probably was stopped right there. I won't tell you her name now. All revved up, Jim wrote that. And I kept saying, Jim, we need another bridge. And so he wrote another bridge. I said, now, Jim, you gotta, you gotta stop what you're doing. Don't do it that way. You gotta do it. Let's do it more Southern. That was that Southern blue, that Southern rock thing going on. I said, this, you don't want to be Southern rock. It can't sound like Southern rock, but it's got to have that flavor of it. And it does. And so the day we were recording, doing the track on All Revved Up, Jim goes, me, you got to go by yourself. Uh, I'm, I'm not well. Todd goes, where's Jim? I goes, he's up in the house. I'm feeling well. He goes, well, are you okay? Let's go for there. I said, yeah, let's go for it. So... Todd and I directed that track, <laughs> and Jim hated it. I mean, Jim goes, oh, we can do that. Well, what are you, the hell you think you're doing? I didn't send you there to do this. Now he, now he likes it, don't you, Jimmy? And two out of three ain't bad. This is a wild story. You ready for this? Talk about improv, and I'm good at improv. So the first two lines of two out of three ain't bad were not written, right? And Todd wants to do the vocal. I'm going, Todd just wants to finish the record because he thinks Jim and I are nuts. And I said, but we don't have the first two lines. He goes, just sing the rest of the song. We'll get the rest of the song later. So the music starts, and I just sing. Baby, we can talk all night, but that ain't getting us nowhere. I don't know if I read that on a piece of paper, on some of Jim's notebooks. I don't know where that came from, but I sang that. And nobody, we hadn't heard that line before. And Jim goes, oh, I'll change it later. He never changed it. So you mentioned Todd Rundgren. What was it like to have him as your producer? Working with Todd was um, a trip. Oh, the motorcycle on Bad Out of Hell. That's one take. 
And Jim is going, well, Todd, I think we need a real motorcycle outside. We'll move the mics out there. Or we need to roll the motorcycle in here, probably better sound. And we'll mic up the motorcycle and get that rev sound like I want. Todd turns around, punches some buttons on the floor, you know, his pedal board. And he goes, play the song. And he starts. And that motorcycle is one take. That's one take. And he plays it. I guess into the guitar solo and plays it on out and turns around and looks at Jim and goes, was that motorcycle enough for you? Oh, he's an obstinate little guy. I love him, but he is like this. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. You know, it's like, I'll show you. That's who he is. So you have to accept it. He's a wizard, a true star. Yeah. You, it's like you had to accept Jim's songs. You, you had to be willing to step off the road that everybody else is walking down. You know, there might be a really great road off to the right if you just thought about going there, or a really great ride to the left, you know. It doesn't make any difference, but you can't stay in the same verse bridge course. You can't keep doing that. And then you get to bat two objects in the rearview mirror is Jim knew about me and my father. And that's where that song came from. Life is a lemon. That's me. I didn't necessarily write it. I added a line. But I'm the one who says, let's get in here and break it off. Maybe guitar solo. Jim goes, okay. And so we did that. So I moved the things around, but I did it gently because you had had to treat Jim. It's like Diane Warren. You know who Diane Warren is, right? Okay. I've done some Diane Warren songs. I said to her, uh, Diane, you have to change... It's been a hit since then, not for me, but for somebody else. You have to change this second verse because in the storyline, it's completely wrong and way off base. She goes, I don't change lyrics for anybody. I said, I'm not asking you to change it for me. I'm asking you to change it for the song. And she goes, well, then you show me where it's off. So I, I stopped it and I said, and she goes, damn it. I can't believe you're getting me to rewrite that verse. Because everything's theater with me. Everything is based on a script. Every song is a script. So everything has to be absolute in its, not in its character, but in its storyline. So you take another song on Bat 3, Blind as a Bat. I wouldn't take any writer's credit for that. And he goes, well, you stick it. I said, nah, you wrote it. I just added here and moved it there and did some stuff to it. And don't worry about it. I do that to every writer. Anybody out there that thinks that somebody gives me a song and I record it, you need to see a psychiatrist. Because only one song that's ever been given to me that I didn't put my mark on, and I did put my mark on it, is crying out loud. Because... No one, they can sing it, but they, they can't deliver it. You can sing a song and you watch all these shows, uh, American Idol or The Voice. I like The Voice more. And I, the person that shocked the hell out of me was, uh, oh, I had her name. In the, uh, anyway, she said to somebody, you, you can't just feel the song. And I say this all the time. You have to become the song. And she said that. A young, young girl, her father had a big hit in the 80s. Miley Cyrus? Yeah, Miley Cyrus on The Voice. I almost, I almost fell out of my chair. She goes, 
you don't feel the song. You have to become the song. And that I say that to people. You don't feel it, you become it. You have to live it. You have to know who it is. You have to know what they do. You have to know where they're from. You have to know, you have to create, you have to know who their parents were. For every song I sing, I know who their parents were. I know who this is there and where they got. That's how I do it. And every song is sung by a different character. So you had another question in there. What was it? What part did Rocky Horror play in the success of Bad Out of Hell? Okay, this is 1977, October 31st it came out. And it came out to the fourth review by Dave Marsh on Rolling Stone. He reviewed it July, August, September, and October and gave it one star. And I don't even know why he did that. His claim is we ripped off Bruce Springsteen. That's still the running thread through things I read now. Well, you know, because of his Springsteen influence. I don't have a Springsteen influence. Springsteen should be influenced by me. I love his shows. He's invited me to five shows, and I've gone. I sit there, and <laughs> Bob Dylan tapped me on the shoulder once and goes, Hi, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Bob Dylan. And I looked at him and went, No fucking kidding. <laughs> no, I would have never known that. And I saw Bob Dylan, I guess, like what I did. Anyway, so I'm going to go back. I got to get off this tangent. I got to get finish my story. Rocky Horror influenced Bad Out of Hell a lot because 77, I talked them into doing videos. Film clips is what I, but they were called videos over in Europe. I did four songs for $35,000. Not bad. I walked into the theater and the cameras were all mounted on, on ladders out in the middle of the theater. And I turned, I said, what are you doing? And they go, well, we're going to shoot the, we're going to shoot the film. I said, no, the object of this exercise is that the audience then sees a different perspective from what they could get of sitting watching a concert. It makes the shows that much better if they like you. If they don't, they don't do anything. But when you get a close up of a person, and I'm doing some stupid stuff in that, but I said to him, I lied to him. I said, listen, Lou Adler is going to put one of the songs as a trailer before the Rocky Horror shows. And they go, are you sure? I said, I'm positive. They go, did you call him? I said, yeah, I called him. So I didn't. So anyway, I called him afterwards and I said, Lou, could I interest you in maybe putting one of the songs off the record uh, before Rocky Horror? He goes, well, I got to like the footage. I said, I'll send you all of them. So he liked Paradise. I said, great. So Paradise was a clip before every Rocky Horror show. So that helped. And it was just, yeah, Rocky Horror show helped. And it hurt in some way, but it helped also. That was how Rocky Horror show, Bat was influenced by Rocky Horror. But Bat was in its own world and still is. And people do not like me in the industry, not the acting side, the music side. Because, and I wasn't trying to, I proved them wrong. You need to go with this person. You need to not be with this man, Jim Steinman. I said, because I knew what was, what was going on, what the audience would do when I did a Jim Steinman song. First time I've ever had that reaction. First time Jim's ever had that reaction. People said you could sing, but we've never been, uh, you know. And so that's it.
So tell me, what explains the staying power of Rocky Horror? Why do people still enjoy it today? I think it's just because it's, it's friggin' weird. But yet it tells a story. But it's bizarre. It's very strange. People invite these people over that never say, well, I'm going to show you Rocky Horror now. And they make them sit there and watch it. And then those people like it and they do the same. And it's just this. And like I said, the shadow cast people. It's become a way for people that want to act and perform to actually do it and actually do it for real. And that's the thing that got me into where I liked it and I found it okay was the fact that it was real and it was honest. It wasn't this, oh, we're going to have fun and play, you know, I'm going to play Eddie, you know. The guy playing Eddie or the woman playing Eddie, that's real to her. They're hardcore real. And so it's very honest. So I like it. Anything that's honest and real, I love. That was Meatloaf. Next time, Quentin Tarantino and Eli Roth. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayenga. Produced by Kurt Sayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman. With music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazes, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. <laughs> <laughs>